<laughs> We're doing the business. Thank game. you, everyone, for coming. No, Hello. Just, <laughs> this is this is the business of games. Yeah. But you were saying. Oh, hi! Sub <laughs> <laughs> yo? That would be the director. All right, so I think, I think we, we nailed that last question to the ground. Hey, that's, that's cool. That shiny new game. Yes. Intellectual property. Intellectual license. property. So the uh, while when we're writing it, you may talk about fluff, but what fluff really is is intellectual property. Yeah. It's a storyline that you own or you rent from someone else, you license out from someone else. Uh, fate does that with Dresden Files. Right. Yeah. The one of the yeah the biggest fate uh, RPG was the Dresden Files, which of course is Jim Butcher's novel series. Okay. Um, uh, so the, you want? Is that a good idea? Is that what? Is it a good idea? Is it a bad idea? Uh, it, <laughs> it can be both. It, yeah, it's it it's tough. Right? The the bonus of licensing an intellectual property is that you, it has an audience. We're talking about trying to find an audience. Yeah. An intellectual property that's worth licensing, you want it because people are already fans of that thing. Uh, it's difficult because you, it requires. Making a contract, often with a an entertainment, a Hollywood entertainment production company, or or a publishing company in New York, uh, and it is going to, it's very businessy. You really want to have someone who's smart and probably want a lawyer or two, uh, and uh, you're going to have to pay some percentage of what you are you're making off that. Probably you're going to have to pay an upfront fee for. Uh, for creating the license, and if you're if you're lucky, that can be factored into your royalty payments to them too, so you don't have to have two full levels. Yeah. But some percentage of what you're you're selling is going to go to fulfill the license, and the question becomes whether you get enough extra sales out of that, so that you're making money off it, or you're only getting enough sales that it's looking like you're making money off it, and everything else is going back to feed. The, uh, feed the license. Um, uh, another disadvantage um, <laughs> with licensed properties is that a lot of times, uh, the more what I've discovered is that the more mainstream the uh, entertainment company, the rights holder is, right, um, the more difficult it is to get them to understand the realities of role-playing game development and production, how much time it takes, how much effort it takes, the economy of scale on sales projections, um, and whatnot. Like, we got really lucky. Evil Hack got really lucky with Jim Butcher because he is a gamer. Uh, so he gets it. And when we were talking about contract terms, he offered us contract terms that we're very respective of how long it takes to make an RPG. Uh, and and we, ha we got a lot of flexibility uh, in that regard. Um, some folks, especially if we're talking about a major movie property, <laughs> um, some of which Stan, with an exclamation point, has experience <laughs> with, 
Um, oh, I'm about to talk about that. Their, their, uh, their demands uh, can show that they don't really have perspective on, on what this, this business is. So uh, that can be a pitfall, a huge pitfall. Also, do not automatically assume that because you managed to get the rights to a popular franchise that that means the game is automatically going to be successful because there have been cases um, of Firefly RPG, for example, which was a really, really good setting, very popular, but the RPG came and more or less died out pretty quickly. It's hard to find these days. And I don't know... Are you talking about the Serenity, the first, the first, the first one, one? or the new one? No, the first one. The yeah. first one, yeah. yeah. And uh, so you're not always... That had, that had other problems. I mean, they, they had, that was a weird deal they, they turned... Um, the the I, do you know? No, I don't know the background behind. It. All I know is it yeah. popped up on bookshelves and then it was gone six months later. Well, so, yeah. They, yeah, they had a very short window for the life of that, and the, they weren't the production company they were working with at that point was what Lenny was talking about. They really didn't understand what was going on. They're, people at, at studios who are used to doing licensing, they're used to doing T-shirts and coffee mugs and stuff that when you when it comes in for approval it means you pick it up and they go okay that looks good approved well when you send them in a game to be approved you're sending them in a 300 page manuscript that they have to read and approve and if if they don't read it and just approve it and something's wrong they're their butts on the line and if they if they do have to read it and they don't want to read it, they just drag their feet and suddenly your production schedule is out the window because it takes them you know, a month or two to read a book and tell you that you can do it. Or worse, start telling you the ways to change it that make no sense. So when I was working at West End Games, <laughs> you knew that's where I'm I was so going. excited right. about this. <laughs> we... Uh, West End Games at that point, they, they had a few in-house games, but mostly they were living off uh, licenses. The main one being Star Wars. They, they did the first Star Wars RPG, uh, which more or less created the expanded universe. That's a separate story. But they then started licensing everything under the sun. they go to the licensing show in New York every February and just kind of walk around and find what was cheap. And so the very first product I worked on when I joined West End was uh, the Tank Girl role-playing game, World of Tank Girl, um, which was hilarious because we licensed that from Sony. I don't know if you remember the movie Tank Girl or the comic Tank Girl. The people there were huge fans of the comic, and the movie was in production, and it wasn't looking so good, but the, the production company wasn't sending us a lot. And they weren't sending us the scripts. They were sending us some stills and an outline. So in the end, they wrote the game based off the comic. Uh, turns out that Sony had no idea what a role-playing game was. They thought they were making, like, Monopoly, some kind of board game for kids. So when we sent them back, a, a, and uh, they didn't have to review the rules. This was done for uh, MasterCard. Was a Master Book was the name of the the rule system. So this was just a world-setting book. Tank Girl is a pretty raunchy property. <laughs> there's, there's animal people and humans, and sometimes they get together. They curse a lot. They smoke and they drink. And so we're writing a game that's true to that, and we send it to them for, for uh, approvals, and we get a a panic phone call back saying, well, you can't make a game like this. 
How, what do you, no, how can you possibly make a game like this? You cannot have the drinking, and you can't have, like, do you know your property? Why do you think we license this from you? We want to, this is our audience. They, in the end, just gave up because they didn't understand. And it's a terrible seller anyway. But it's just, just a, they could get licenses so cheap. It was before the explosion of licensing, and these companies were just looking for uh, sometimes five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars. You could get the rights to like mimic. We did mimic for I yep. think five hundred dollars was the was the licensing fee or a thousand dollars. But there's no game there. Right? They, at best, there's a board game there, or or a one shot game, but not an ongoing role playing game. So uh, again, uh, even a hot property, uh, uh, which is bad to say about Mimic because it wasn't terribly, but Tank Girl is pretty good, had a decent fan base, but the, there, it wasn't a storyline through, it wasn't an adventuring kind of thing, so it really never fit for making a, a role-playing game. Uh, and, oh, at, at TSR, or it, it Wizards, by the time we did it, we had the Wheel of Time uh, uh, license to do a D&D supplement, a couple of supplements for it. And uh, there you ran into the secondary problem when you've got an intellectual property where the, they really do care about it. And in fact, the, the creator cares a lot about it. That you need to get the creator's a, approval. And sometimes oh, um, <laughs> you Writing for games involves creating new stuff. And sometimes the creator really doesn't want you to write new stuff for their setting. Or they have something in their head that they haven't written yet. And what you've written is no good because it, you didn't know the thing that was in their head already. Um, my favorite. Do you know the, the uh, um, Harry Potter story from Wizards? Uh, I know so I know the version of it that you tell at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> this may be a step down from there. But uh, so Wizards uh, got the rights to Harry Potter before the first movie was made. Uh, it, it was in production. And they, had, they did a, a TCG, a trading card game, and we had the rights to do a role-playing game. And so I was in a team that was developing a, a role-playing game for... I think we're aiming at ages eight and up. Uh, and so we're working on that. And uh, one of the people in charge of the, of the team was uh, on a trip to London where they were going to have a quick meeting with uh, J.K. Rowling while they were there to talk about the, the card game in particular. But we had a, our first working draft of the role-playing game, and he wanted to show it to her to get approval uh, at least, not it wasn't official approval, but to get her buy-in and find out what w- we could do to, to grease the wheels, and uh, it did not go at all well. In fact, she had no idea that someone had sold the rights to do this. It's, it turns out that the deal was made with Warner Brothers, who <laughs> absolutely had the rights to sell it to us, but. At that point, Warner Brothers only had the rights to the first movie, and they wanted the rights to all the movies, and they wanted J.K. to be happy. And when we showed her the the basic role-playing game, she was not happy. No one, no one could put words in her characters' mouths. The card game only took her words, 
or the movie words and put them on cards. We were writing, you know, well, Hermione comes to you and tells you this so you can go on an adventure. So Hermione never said that. And so uh, she, she was very, very, very unhappy. And so Warner Brothers came to <laughs> Wizards and said, uh, so you know that um, game we told you you could make? And you gave us lots of money for it. You can't make that. <laughs> and uh, the Wizards was not happy about that. Uh, it, it worked out in the end. I forget which other properties. They, they wound up making a secondary deal with Wizards. But uh, both, both Wheel of Time and, to a greater extent, uh, Harry Potter wound up with authors who got in the way I say in air quotes, really, I'm air quoting this, people listening on the podcast, uh, um, because of the, how much they cared about their setting and, and how much cre- creative control they needed to maintain. And speaking from an author's perspective as well as a game designer's perspective, um, when you're developing a game, you have to create a more or less open-ended universe you have to have far, far vaster adaptability than you do with a novel, which means that the characters who may only do certain actions in a book are going to have to be available to do a great deal more in the game setting for obvious reasons. And when, and I hate to say this because I, I'm, some of these authors I'm friends with, but most authors generally tend to sit on their creative, uh, their intellectual property rights and their creative control about like Smaug on his horde. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them are borderline militant OCD when it comes to making sure they know every single little nuance that goes into anything that happens. But and there's a good reason for that because there's a long and storied history with authors writing a property. The rights for like movie rights or television rights get sold off. But Jim, good example. And what happens on that end is nothing like what you wrote. Um, Jim Butcher still laments to this day uh, what he won't say it in a panel but off the books some of the stuff that was done with the Dresden Files when it went into a television series he was head desking looking at and that's one of those cases where you lose creative control they can do things with your characters that then can actually reflect back on your other property that you're writing as, as a novelist so you have to take that into consideration from the game designer's perspective if you pick up somebody else's property that uh, they're going to be a little more hands on or want to be in some cases I don't think really Jim has, has had that much of an issue. Him and Fred have a pretty good relationship when it comes to writing. Well, right, and we um, are uh, as we have as much of a vested interest in caretaking Jim's IP as Jim does. Yeah. Uh, largely because I mean, I me especially because uh, it continues to provide me work. <laughs> so it keeping Jim. Keeping Jim happy, like I think that was actually like my title at Evil Hat for a little while, right? Uh, <laughs> that would look good on a business card. Uh, Official Evil Hat, keep Jim happy. Keep, keep, Jim, keep happy. Jim happy, guy. Um, well, and we ha- and we, you know, uh, in in that vein, we found a way uh, to handle it, and it actually took some some doing some negotiation. So I don't know if you're familiar with the Dresden Files role playing game, but. It's actually written from an in-universe point of view. It's written from the point of view of uh, Will Borden, who's one of the characters in the series. And his objective, because in the books, he's a gamer geek. And what he decided was that the best way to educate people about the threat of the supernatural world 
was to make a role-playing game and to base it off of Harry's case notes, a.k.a. the content of the novels. Which was an awesome take on it, by the way. That, Th- was, that was awesome. Thanks. It was hard won. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and the reason why we decided to do that was twofold. Because it allowed our game to both be canonical and wrong at the same time, if need be. So at the point in time where the game was set, if Jim ended up writing something in future books that contradicted material that we had in the game, we always had the out of saying, Billy got it wrong. He had limited information. He was using Harry's info at the time. He got it wrong. And um, secondly, uh, it did not overly burden Jim with having to make stuff up before he was ready. Uh, and so that was sort of the solution we came up with in order to navigate what we might perhaps now call the J.K. Rowling problem. <laughs> we, we might. Uh, you, you can, I won't. From here, from here and forward, trouble. on your podcast, <laughs> we have now canonized that term forever and ever. Well, it's been nice working in the game industry. I'll, I'll be sitting out with you guys next year. Hey, it was, I was the one that coined it, so it falls on me first. So, <laughs> so um, on the other hand, it can work really well. The, 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 the best example I can think of is, like I said, early Star Wars, uh, which when, when West End put out uh, the their original Star Wars role-playing game, there wasn't much as far as ancillary material beyond uh, Splinter of the Mind's Eye and the Star Wars Christmas special. And so... (laughs) If you want to count droids. So, so, yeah. Now, one of the people involved at the time was Bill Slavisek, uh, who wrote the Star Wars encyclopedia uh, for Tor. And so he had already done expansion work for, uh, for Lucasfilm, and so he was in charge of doing the, the line. And, uh, it got to the point, as things started growing, as licensing started blossoming for Star Wars, uh, they would hand people copies of the West End games, and that was, their li- that was their original licensing bible. These are things that are true if you're going to do things for Star Wars. Um, and that was a terrifically powerful position to be in, and we were too hard-pressed with work and not being paid much to, to take terribly good advantage of that. But Lucasfilm developed a big licensing uh, department after that, and um, so what, it, was, it got to the point where it used to be that what West End wrote was true, and then got to be the people that we helped train as being licensors would come out and say, well, you can't do that because this now is true, or we, we don't want that to be true anymore. The, um, the funny, my favorite thing from, from uh, Lucasfilm back in uh, the West Coast days was, um, <laughs> so we had a, an illustration of a guy on Tatooine, he was digging a trench, had his shirt off, so, you know, kind of buff looking guy digging, and it was just a drawing of a guy, um, but you know he had his shirt off, and therefore he had nipples, because people do. But Lucasfilm came back and said no nipples. He said, but he's a he's a guy. He's taking his shirt off. It's not a. This is like. It's, he's like, no, no. We understand, but 
That's the rule. No nipples. We don't know if nipples exist in the Star Wars universe. <laughs> I had not heard this story. Oh, man. It ties in with this. There's a, a set, uh, about the same time we'd done a thing where in the middle of an, uh, Star Wars Adventure Journal, so it was short fiction, uh, piece of short fiction where the... Um, the rebels were getting ready to jump into hyperdrive, and so they dumped their garbage right before they left. And we got a note back from them saying, "We like to think that the rebels are more ecologically conscious than that." <laughs> so it's in your movies. It's well, the Empire does that. We like the, the. They would never dump garbage into space. It's not what the rebels are about. <laughs> I want to do this panel ten more times just to hear you tell more stories <laughs> about about Lucas uh, Lucas Films uh, license. That that's that's fascinating stuff. Uh, no, nipples exist. In it's two forty-five. I want to make sure that uh, sure. Wait, yeah. that, uh, are there any audience members that may have any questions they want to ask the panelists? Uh, yeah, actually, um, going back to business again. Uh, oh, yes, topic yeah, at hand. Uh, marketing and distribution. Um, I mean, I'm selling online for RPG. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Which is the place to sell, right? Yeah, like, it yeah. is. And on my, my own website, and <laughs> I go to cons and you know, try and promote the game and do the podcast. Mm-hmm. But, like, I have distribution with impressions, you know, and uh, not selling, I'm selling some, but, you know, I would like to sell more. Like, what other things? What are the big things that anyone who's doing a game should be doing to market? I mean, I've said you do copies now, but like, I don't know, what am I missing? What, what are the big things that most indies forget to do? Um, uh, the, in, in my opinion, independently published games thrive and or die on their success or failure at building a community mm-hmm. around their game. It's not about how many outlets am I pushing my game out through. It's about how many flesh and blood people are talking about, interested in, and, and, and doing my thing. Social media is a great tool for that. Google Plus, one of the greatest things that happened for us for the Fake Core Kickstarter, incidentally, not planned, was uh, the Google Plus Fake Core community that now has an ungodly thousands of people in it, right? That, like, um, in-store events, getting people mm-hmm. to, to uh, run and, and mm-hmm. play your thing. I mean, that's where it is. Uh, have you ever talked to, uh, at conventions, any of the um, uh, Games on Demand uh, folks? Uh, well, so you, what am I missing? That's A number one right there because uh, what you can do is go to conventions. Uh, Games on Demand is specifically designed for small press um, RPGs to get coverage. Uh, they do uh, track at conventions where you can show up and GM your game or friends of yours or whatever. Go ahead. I want to add to that uh, the double exposure on Void program. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's basically like a way to... Yeah, yeah. So you, you can use, use that to get like a demo force, basically. Um, but but it's it's less about because even if you get it seen, 
right? On a, you're like you're on a website. Oh, it's a cool fake game, but like, yeah. but like, why why would I play your game instead of Mind Jammer? Right? You get into that same that same tension of like, of of product. How do how do I and and uh, to me, a community of real people running and playing your game is absolutely the very best thing that you can leverage. Uh, so build that any way that you can. If I, if I might, I could say that I can attest to that because for the first two years we had very very little marketing. There was a few banner ads here and there. That was about it because we just flat out couldn't afford it. Where we built our game was through that community, but also more importantly, engage them, get into the forums, get into the, the groups, talk to these people. Because one of the things that I have noticed is that our fans love is the fact that I'll actually get on the forums. They'll ask me questions about the game clarifications, things like that, or what ifs. And I'll actually talk to them. They love that. That's you build up that loyal core base, and from there everything else can take off. But yeah, I can definitely test the success of that if you groom that properly. And if yes. you if you know <laughs> if you know folks in different in different parts of the country yeah. who will take your game to stores when you're you're if they know a store that's nearby that has a uh, an RPG events day. Have them, have them run, have them run your game. Like get it, get it played. Yeah, I think that the the go to the fate group with that and say that you're looking for people to to, to pitch in. You have, I'll I'll give you X. I'll give you you know I'll send you this much store credit or a T-shirt that only, I only send out to my volunteers. Right. Please run an event at a convention for this game and like it, every every time you can do that, it it builds. On something until you've got a mass. It may take time. It's going to take time. Yeah. But you know. Yeah. I mean, the best example of that that I I remember is uh, Legend of the Five Rings. Yep. Right. Absolutely. That they decided to make that card game, and it was after the bubble of TCGs, and no no one was buying new stuff. So they created this squad of people who drove around on a big tour, going from from. Uh, game store to game store, and they would set up. Like they would be there for the weekend. They teach people to play and run a tournament and and have a sword to give away and do bonsai, and everyone would get excited. And then everyone would be playing the game when they left, and they'd go on to the next store and set up a little cadre. And then they'd use that to pull it together into a national thing. They started having, the, you know, send your stores champion. Session of your game. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. More than once. <laughs> are people that are not you doing that? Uh, I've had other people run it uh, a few times. I, mean, I should get more of an actual voice for it. Right. Because yeah. that's, that's another part of it that, like, yeah. I mean, if you go out and they're like, look at my cool game, I'm going to run it for you, right? Like, I mean, everyone's going to be like, well, don't yeah. Don't say it like that. All right, that's, yeah, don't <laughs> say it like that. Um, uh, don't try that voice at home. Uh, I'm a professional, but um, uh, that—that's where it comes from. Is folks that aren't you that that will vouch for it and and, and run it. And, okay. Yeah. The actual physical writing part of what you guys do. Um, <laughs> what um, what kind of background or what kind of education? Or how did you start doing that? Bourbon. I'm just, sorry, what? The School of Bourbon? <laughs> the School of Bourbon? No. Uh, um, I, I am a, an English and theater major. Uh, um, 
and uh, and for a long time uh, wanted fries with that. And uh, I'm sorry. so I had I had time I had time on my hands, so mm -hmm. that was good. Uh, um, Stan, <laughs> I I like to say that I have a degree in advanced book report. <laughs> book report, in English major. After after four years, I'm fully qualified to read something and tell you about it. Uh, but also, uh, you know, I I was doing freelance writing of. Uh, for local newspapers and trying to get fiction published, so just have background advice. Really, you could do what you're doing now without a degree. Well, yes. Well, what, so the thing about getting a, a degree in English is that you are spending time developing your writing skills, and that's critical. You've got to do that sometime, and it doesn't have to be in college. You don't need a degree in it, but you need to put in the time. Yeah, so. I, in the industry, I've met people from wide, vastly wide, different backgrounds, which he's about to, I'm basically, <laughs> go for it. My degree is in criminal justice. It has absolutely nothing to do with writing. And uh, my day job for the past 25 years uh, has been between the military, law enforcement, and security contracting. So I come from about as far away of a background for an author and game designer as you could possibly get without going into a Buddhist monastery. So. My advantage is that I love science fiction. I love fantasy. I read all the time. I write all the time. I've always, uh, I've always loved to write. It's just been a natural thing for me. And because of that, I learned how to do it well on my own. Where the advantage that I had came in was the fact that I was working six days, 12-hour shifts over in Iraq and Afghanistan with absolutely nothing to do on my downtime except go to the PX, buy stuff, and go back to my chew and sit around and wait. So with a lot of downtime and a lot of just, you know, uh, a little bit of escapism was necessary in those sorts of environments, which allowed me to sit down and I was able to write. What I noticed is that doing that with that kind of work schedule, I knocked out a 500-page role-playing game in about six months. Whereas the supplement to it, which is about half that size, took me two years to write being at home with kids and a regular day job. Yep. Mostly the kids. Because you get about two pages in, and the next thing you know, you're a jungle gem. That's, that's just not it. So it's not required for you to have that sort of academic background to come into it. It helps, especially if you're going, if you're going to work for a major publisher. It, it helps, but it's your drive, your determination, your reliability, especially that. And honestly, your skills and your ability to branch out of it. You know, no, I'm sorry. sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, let's say that... The, the degree and your background only only helps in situations where people want to look at your your resume. Right? Beyond that, it's a meritocracy. If you write well, you'll get published. Yeah, and, and writing is, and it's one of those things that I think always needs saying in, in as many venues as possible, writing is a technical skill. Mm -hmm. And the ability to write, I mean, even like, there's this weird... This weird sort of, I don't know, mythology around writing and people who write creative people um, Bourbon. Uh, that um, is, uh, largely speaking, uh, you know, it's BS, right? Like, uh, anybody from any background can be creative. Creativity is not something that is uh, limited to a chosen few number of people, right? And writing is a technical skill that you can learn and improve in a bunch of different ways through a bunch of different opportunities over time. So 
Yeah. There's a, there's a movie called Throw Mama from the Train. <laughs> I don't know where this is going, but I love this already. It's a, a very short scene in there where Billy Crystal plays a writer who's having all kinds of troubles writing. And he talks to his, uh, his agent, who's played by Rob Reiner, uh, and complain, you know, uh, complaining because the agent is now representing his his ex-wife, who he says stole his book. And the agent says to him, look, it's over. She's published. She's been on the talk shows. You go write something new. I'd love to, you know. She's writing a third thing. We're getting ready to start already. I'm in the business of publishing. If you want to be an artist, go be an artist. The rest of us will be here making a living. So that that's kind of, Paul Wember and hear someone talking about a technical skill and the, the kind of boot, bootstrapping it. You know, you have to do it, right? There's the the uh, I don't want to I don't want to downplay the the quality of getting it getting a degree in it because I found it very useful. And you you meet people and get perspectives that of people who have spent their lives thinking about writing and education and and the craft, and that is very useful. For sure, but for sure. it's not it's not required. Uh, you will have to find that to some extent. In another group, and your your difficulty will be finding the right people to pull together. But once you have them, you can do exactly the same thing. What you need is the time and the effort, and you have you have to do it. And uh, Ed Stark, one of the uh, game designer I worked with for a long time at several companies, I don't know where he pulled it out, but he used to say that uh, that uh, the people that he taught worked with said the first million words you write are crap. But you've got to get through that first million. Right. Once you get through that million, million one, gold. <laughs> yeah, ten thousand hours, right, or whatever they say. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a, you know, it's like it's like any other craft. Right. Like right. any other craft, you never stop trying. Guys, to it is two fifty-eight. So. We have two minutes left. What can we tell you in two minutes? <laughs> so. Nothing. Okay, great. All right. Our job here is go ahead. Go ahead. Um, you guys are mostly doing RPGs, right? Yes. Okay. Is there any movement towards putting that to mobile devices? It's kind of hard uh, because tabletop role-playing games have largely been focused on tabletop with friends and whatnot. Uh, that being said, what is making big inroads, and I've got uh, a couple of friends that work on this, are apps that cater to that. Right. Aids. Yeah. Like exactly. Like yeah. That. Are you asking us that question? Because yes. if we if we actually knew that, we'd be. If if I was going to right, if if I definitively knew the answer to that question, I'd be doing it. <laughs> but um, but uh, what I, what I would ask is this: Are there are there apps that you can develop to aid the the role playing experience that do not? require, that do not infringe on sort of the intellectual property rights 
of that of that company. Because if you make something like if you have like a map, a map just like a map syncing tool where uh, where you can like send everybody's cell phone. Oh, here's the here's the dungeon that we're in. You don't have to like clear that with Wizards of the Coast or any RPG that uses maps, right? Right. Um, so if there's a way that you can do that, like provide a tool that eases or enhances the experience of playing a particular RPG, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're obligated to that company legally, right? So if you can find that route, do yeah. that first. And Roll20 is a good example of how right. that Roll can 20, actually yeah. play into where the companies will actually come to you to get in on that because they recognize that it could be the next generation of where things go with role-playing games. Pathfinder, uh, Paizo jumped right on top of Roll20. That's why there's so much uh, material for Pathfinder out there. Uh, who else was a gut in Roll20? Two other big companies. Uh, was, was it... It wasn't... Was Savage it, Worlds? They, uh, was yeah. it Pinnacle? Was it... I only know the Pathfinder because it's what right. I play. So. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree. I think that if you... Again, same, same caveat. If I knew for sure, I'd be doing it. But... Uh, if you build something that stands on its own, but is easy to clip on the details, then you have something that you've got a business out of, and if it's successful, you can you can have add-ons and then grow it even bigger. Right. Like, if you try and get a license, it's going to a going to be difficult, and b you've got to succeed in that arena. And and it, if you do something with Wizards of the Coast, they're not going to want you to clip Pathfinder onto it too. So you're you're stuck. Your, your, your avenue is very much thin. Right. What, what you want to do is answer the question of, like, if I'm a gamer with a cell phone, what is the app that you can make that would make somebody say to me, if you don't, if you don't game with this app, you're, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're not even gaming. Right. We're talking about all of the 3D, the virtual AR, Microsoft's new tool that's coming out. Oh, wow. So we're, we're, we're moving into the 3D realm. And that's the thing. There's so many applications that can work with existing gaming systems, be it tabletop or even uh, role-playing games. Yeah. Because it helps visualize and everybody yeah. like visualization instead of just you're walking through the woods and you're, you know, you yeah. no, my... actually create the path. Uh, and, and there are, like, we are not sure that's generic enough ideas, but the, the question we're, we're saying is are we going to focus our effort on just creating something new, completely new, out of the box to make a name for ourselves, or are we going to create something that we can sell to whoever? Okay. Well, you, I, you may want to get involved with a small publisher to uh, where you'll be supporting each other. Like, they right. will have material, then the licensing terms will be next to nothing, you know, help promote us in mm. some cases. And then, and so what you'll have is their intellectual property to work with, and what they'll have is you're introducing them to a, an audience beyond that. The larger company you try and work with, the more they're going to want to make you serve them. Fair enough, if they're the big, the big cat. But uh, you want to be in control of your destiny. Guys, and it is now 3.05. Cool. Oh, we're late. No worries. All right. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Stan. Thank you. Thank you.